Okay, so today we are continuing in our lead series, and our scripture is Mark 9, 33 to 37, and Mark 10, 33 to 45. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Mark 10, 35 to 45. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You do not know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink with or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. Thank you, Lauren. How would you define greatness? Like for you, what, is it, what would it mean to live for greatness? whether it's in the workplace or at home or in the community. Uh, how would you define greatness? Last week, we started off this lead series that we've been in, uh, talking about what it, look, it could look like to move from being good to great leaders, kind of borrowed from the Jim Collins idea there, uh, looking at a text in, in Exodus 18 and seeing how uh, God, through his father-in-law, Jethro, helped Moses become an even better leader. He was, he was good before, but he helped him come, become even better or a great leader, as we were talking about but what does it mean to be great? What does it mean, mean to, to live for that? Uh, what's really incredible about the text in front of us is we have Jesus' answer to that question, what it means to live for greatness. And I imagine for some, this, this uh, definition of greatness that Jesus lays out here uh, might be a little surprising. Uh, for others, it might be uh, counterintuitive. But for everyone, and and including and maybe even perhaps especially for those who are familiar with this text, with this call to greatness, what this also shows us is we can very easily understand what it means to pursue good, uh, true greatness and yet not actually do it. So today we're going to look at three things as it relates to greatness, as we think about leading and all the different areas in our lives that God has us leading in the church, in the home, uh, in the community, in the workplace. what it means to live for greatness. So three things we're going to look at. We're going to look at the call to greatness, the challenge of greatness, the power for greatness. So the call, the challenge, the power. But first, let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we get to gather together today uh, as your church, as your people living in mission. Father, as we look at this wonderful text with both its challenge 
and its encouragement, would you, would, would you be the one to speak to us? For many in this room, you've given us uh, opportunity, humanly speaking, to influence others in the ways that we lead. Would you help us lead as you would have us lead? And so, Father, as we look at what it means to live for true greatness, I pray that you especially give us your spirit to understand this call and live it out. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So first, let's look at the call to greatness. Again, Mark 9, verse 33 says this. Jesus and his disciples came to the city of Capernaum, and when Jesus was in the house, he asked the disciples, what were you arguing about on the road as we traveled? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the, who was the greatest. Uh, yeah, they kept quiet. I mean, if, if I were to translate this apart from, you know, the literal, I would probably say they, were, they act sheepishly is basically what it's saying. They kept quiet because here are these guys who had spent up until this point in Mark's gospel account, chapter 9, they'd spent almost, actually a little over two years hanging out with Jesus, seeing him embody all that Jesus is known for embodying, his humility, his selflessness, his love, his servant-heartedness. And yet, these guys were arguing about who's greatest. And what's more is literally right before this text that we just read, Jesus had just predicted that he would die and lay down his life. Like, are you, are you tracking this? And it's at this time, just after that, that these disciples are arguing who's the greatest. It gets better. Look at the other chapter that was read in Mark 10. Later on, not too much later on, two of the disciples, James and John, pull Jesus aside while they're traveling to yet another place and essentially say to him, yo, Jesus, we've got a request for you. Would you like to, you know, we'd like you to go ahead and say that you're going to carry out this request before we even put it. Uh, it's, it's kind of incredible. They were actually trying the presumed clothes on the Savior. Uh, it's, you know, the Son of God, they're like, it's, it's mind-boggling if you ask me. And Jesus in verse 36 replies, what do you want, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do for you? Verse 37, they replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Then down in verse 41, we're told, when the 10 other disciples heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. No kidding, right? They were resentful. Why? Because James and John were trying to outposition them, essentially. And this is just nuts until you realize that Mark almost certainly is using the disciples as ever to give a window into our own hearts. So remember I said up at the top, this text might be very familiar to you. You might already know, okay, Dave, I know where you're going with this, greatness and what it means. The disciples had spent over two years hanging out with Jesus. Oh, I forgot to mention. And even between those two occasions that I just read, on another occasion, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. So, Jesus, so these disciples had heard two predictions of Jesus that he would die on the cross uh, for, for them uh, he had embodied for them for over two years what it means to like be a follower of his, and yet they are just con- continually coming back to what it is and what it means to be to be great and how they just have to have it, and it's just a window into our, in our, to our own hearts. Jesus, being the master teacher, understood this was a teaching moment, so he called them all together, and he said, "You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them." And their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Jesus is saying true greatness is not a greatness that the world typically sees as the true greatness that God gives you. 
whether you're living in first century Palestine or 21st century Silicon Valley, the true greatness that God calls us into is almost certainly not the world, not what, what the world would call you into. So what is this call? Well, Jesus says it a number of ways in our text, but perhaps most succinctly in chapter 9, verse 35, when he says, anyone who wants to be first must be very last, and the servant of all. How does one become great? They serve others. The last will be first, Jesus says. And what's amazing about this call is Jesus straight up says, anyone can do it. He says, anyone who wants to be first must be very last. Anyone can do it. Listen to how Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. put it. He said, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. So what we see is Jesus saying, something that we especially need to hear in Silicon Valley because it is, it is remarkably easy for us in a place like the Silicon Valley to define our worth, our greatness by our role. But what Jesus is saying here is he doesn't care so much about our role, whether you're a CEO of a startup or a bus driver or an engineer or whatever. He doesn't care so much about our role except that we are serving Regardless of that role, we got to be serving. That's what true greatness is. Anyone who wants to be first must be very last and the servant of all. To emphasize this point, we're told Jesus took a little child whom he placed among them, and taking this child into his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. It's worth noting that in the ancient Greco Roman world, children had next to no dignity if any dignity at all. Uh, They were literally to be seen and not heard. And so for Jesus to take a little child into his arms and say, you've got to welcome someone like this. You've got to serve someone like a child. He really was making a broader statement of, "You you need to have the eyes to serve those whom our society probably overlook and don't tend to care for as much. That includes children. That includes, quote unquote, the least of these. True greatness is serving all, having eyes to serve all. Uh, I have a good buddy who's now in his uh, early 50s, not at, not at current, but he's just doing an awesome job in the workplace. He's an engineer, and he, his is the rare story of somebody who started out in a company, yes, even in the Silicon Valley, and ended up going all the way up the corporate ladder and ending you know, in the executive role position. He started as an intern, now he's, now he's an executive, all at the same company. And what was really fun was a, f- a few summers back, I had the opportunity to play softball with him, and uh, he had a bunch of his buddies, like four or five, from his company out there on the team, which was always awesome. You have like five dudes coming out, you're like, all right, this is going to be a good, good, good team. It was a good team. Uh, but he, what really struck me were, were a few things. First, the fact that of these four or five buddies that were on this team, they, they represented the, the full spectrum of the company. We had executives on there, there was engineers, there were interns, there was, there was even somebody who was in custodial work. I was like, man, that's, that's pretty incredible. The other thing that really struck me is, as I was getting to know them, they would all just voluntarily let me know things that they loved about my buddy Dave. And it wasn't like I was interviewing them. It's just like, oh, you know Dave? He's like, yeah, he's such a great guy. And they just start telling me about Dave. Uh, they said he was a man of character. They said uh, he's the kind of guy who uh, looks out for the, for the little guy in the workplace, that he had an open-door policy. One guy said that he, 
my buddy helped him like, kind of learn and develop in his career such that he's a lot higher now because of Dave's help with him. One guy said that my buddy Dave helped him through a rough patch in his marriage. And so at one point, I just, I went and asked uh, my buddy Dave about this. And I said, hey, yeah, I'm here. This is pretty cool. Like, tell me about it. And he said, yeah, well, of course, the, the, the big reason why I do this is because this is what Jesus did for me. And I also remember, he went on to say, what it was like to be the intern and how I was just overlooked and nobody opened their door for me. And I was just like, I, I don't feel like that works with the faith, what Jesus calls me to do. And so he's just made his lifelong commitment at this company to just be there, serve others regardless of who they are and have the eyes to serve others. Jesus said, anyone who wants to be first must be very last and servant of all. It's fascinating to me what Jesus is not saying here, okay? Because when Jesus is talking, talking to these guys, trying to help them understand greatness, he does not say, oh, followers of mine, how unspiritual of you. Like, how, why is it that, that thou dost think about greatness? You know, he doesn't say that kind of thing. He doesn't poo-poo and say, greatness is something that only if you're spiritually immature, you'll pursue. Jesus says, no, there is such a thing as greatness. There is such a thing as true greatness that you ought to be pursuing, it's just not the greatness that typically is lifted up in our culture. It's the greatness of serving others. And Jesus is clear. There are rewards attached to this. The logic of what he's saying is be the last in order to be first. There's rewards here. Now, some of that applies to the next life. We'll talk about that some. But some of that also applies to the here and now. The last shall be first. Wait a minute. How could that be? One of my favorite books that I read a number of years back that's just so illuminating on this front is the book uh, Good to Great. Uh, Jim Collins, I've actually referenced it a few times in the series already. I haven't really gotten into any of that content. But have you guys read the book Good to Great? Anybody? I, I highly encourage you if you haven't. It's, it's a great read. It's really, help, it's really helpful to think about things. But in this book, he and his team of social scientists really take, uh, take on the undertaking of understanding empirically what makes a great company from a good company? And being good social scientists, they're, they're, they have to quantify everything, turn everything into data, because they don't want it to be an abstract or ideological undertaking. So they, first of all, they, dis, they determine and help the reader understand how they determined what makes a great company from a good one. Okay, they just had all the measurements, decided, okay, this is what makes a great company. Then they went out and they, and they did all their work with these these supposed great companies, you know, looking at their bottom lines, uh, conducting interviews, looking at their company culture, and all along the way, they're quantifying everything, trying to turn everything into data to get empirical data, not just their thoughts, right? And what's remarkable is at the end of the day, one of their biggest conclusions, even as it, as it shocks them, is the fact that of most of the great companies, they had teams that embodied the very things that Jesus is talking about. That is, they had a mindset of the last will be first. I want to read a few quotes here because this is just too good. It's not a Christian book, okay? We were surprised, shocked really, to discover the type of leadership required for turning a good company into a great one. Compared to high-profile leaders with big personalities who make headlines and become celebrities, the good-to-great leaders seem to have come from Mars, Self-effacing, quiet, reserved, even shy. These leaders are a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. Another quote. In contrast to the very eye-centric style of comparison leaders, we were struck by how the good to great leaders did not talk about themselves. During interviews, 
with the good to great leaders. They'd talk about the company and the contribution of others, of other CEOs, as long as we'd like, but would deflect discussion about their own contributions. When pressed to talk about themselves, they would say things like, I hope I'm not sounding like a big shot, or if, if the board hadn't picked such a great team of successors, you probably wouldn't be talking to me today. Or, did I have a lot to do with it? Oh, that sounds so self-serving. I don't think I can take much credit. We were blessed with marvelous people. Jim Collins goes on to say, it wasn't just false modesty. Those who worked with or wrote about the good to great leaders continually used similar language. Last quote. It almost feels like Collins is trying to justify himself here. Given that this type of leadership cuts against the grain of conventional wisdom, especially the belief that we need larger-than-life saviors with big personalities to transform companies, it is important to note that this is an empirical finding, not an ideological one. We were surprised, shocked, really. This cuts against the grain of conventional wisdom, and yet Jesus was saying this 2,000 years ago. The last will be first. Seek to serve. Now, real quick, is it possible for great companies to be great with a leader and who's successful, who's not of this you know, framework? Certainly. And even Jim Collins acknowledges that. There are plenty of co- companies that do have you know, those big shot type leaders at, at the helm. But when you look across the board, they're just like, it's, it's, it's incredible. The pattern is, is clear. The last shall be first. So there's, there's rewards in this. There's, there's benefit in this. Jesus says, in this life, as we are as we put ourselves last in order to be first. And then, of course, there are also rewards in the next life. Look at Mark 9, 41, just adjacent of the text that was read. Truly I tell you, he said, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. And then back in our text, verse 37, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Uh, This is of profound importance. Jesus is saying when it comes to serving others, all it takes is something like giving them a cup of water or welcoming them in my name. Uh, And what's what's important to understand is, is serving others, therefore, doesn't need to be and is often not flashy or big, but is just quiet and, and faithful. And just to give some perspective here, you and I can do this very thing today here. Because at church, we want to be a welcoming community. This is one of the things I love about Kerr, and I hope it remains uh, true about us, even if God continues to help, help us grow. We, we, we want, as a very strong value, to be a warm and welcoming church. But the only way that's going to happen is if those who call this church home do what God calls us to and have the eyes to see who's new and, and, and warmly welcome them in, into his community. And that's why we want to be welcoming, not so we can be a part of a church that's exciting and growing. We want to invite, we want to be inviting people into this community because really it's his community. And I would just say, if you're new here, uh, we welcome you to help us welcome others. Uh, one of the fun things about being such a transient church uh, in, in a place like the Silicon Valley where there's a lot of turnover, even as we hope and pray and see people putting down roots to, to be here for the long haul, is that while people are in transition, it means if you're new, you're one of many who are new, and after a few weeks of being here, you can genuinely, alongside others who haven't been here for all that long, help welcome others, which is, by the way, how it should always work. So we welcome you to help us welcome others because God says that's really important. Uh, I got a super encouraging text 
a little while ago, a couple years ago actually, uh, from a pastor friend who visited Current during his sabbatical. And uh, afterwards, he sent me a text, which I was like, uh-oh, what's this going to be? <laughs> He's a good guy, so I'm like, it's probably going to be a good positive text, but uh, it was, it was. But he, he pointed out something, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to omit the person's name here because I don't want to embarrass them. But he, he talked about how someone in particular, but even the community in general, was, was very welcoming. He said, so good to see you guys today and to visit Current. It was a great service and really enjoyed the people that I did. So-and-so was especially great in greeting me when I was just standing around with my son. And I saw her do that with one other woman she didn't seem to know. That is huge. Huge? Is that just pastoral hyperbole? Huge? Jesus says it's huge. Welcoming in his name is huge. And how many of us, perhaps this is your story as you sit where you are today, have gone to church, sadly, and not been welcomed, or worse, felt the vibe of, oh. We are called to be a welcoming community. That's why I say every week that we are a community following Jesus together, and you're welcome wherever you're at on your spiritual journey. Sadly, a lot of churches, and it's not like current is immune to this. We've got to pray that the Lord would help us. But sadly, a lot of churches are not known for being welcoming. The only way we're going to be welcoming people in his name, in his name is by looking for those who are new and saying, come on in. Um, I could, I'm not going to do it. I could, I could start recounting so many stories, including from this last wave of baptisms of people who ultimately came to not only hear the gospel, but receive Jesus, put their faith in him precisely because initially someone and the community helped them feel welcome. This is huge. The opposite of not welcoming others is we are hoarding God's community. We are hoarding what it is. Jesus says you will welcome others. You've got to be serving of others, actively looking to others. And may that always be true of us here at, at Current. We've got to look to serve, putting aside, even catching up with friends, that sort of thing. Uh, one of the things we've done in the past, which we always try to remind ourselves, is what we call the three-minute rule. Uh, some of you who are on teams, you might remember that. But it's this whole idea that after church, after the gathering, uh, not to, to tear down right away, not to just look for our own friends that we know, because in that first three minutes, the new people tend to go. And if I were new, that would be me too, even as an extrovert, which is Silicon Valley has a lot of introverts. You, you do the math. Our, our equipment or our friends will still be there three minutes later is the point. So can we take the first three minutes at minimum to just look to meet people and welcome them? After a gathering, we don't want to be legalistic about it, but the point is, how do we be intentional about these things God calls us to? We've got to, when we give a cup of water in his name, when we welcome people in his name, Jesus equates it with rewards in, in the next life because that's what God sees and that's what God uses for his eternal purposes. The call to greatness is to serve others. It doesn't need to be big, it doesn't need to be flashy, but that's the call. Martin Luther King Jr., who I believe probably has a little bit of cred in all this, right? He put it this way. Life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? Life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? That's the call to serve. Here's the challenge, the challenge of greatness. As we've already noticed, the problem of living for true greatness was not a just over there problem for the disciples. It wasn't those leaders, those rulers. It was right here. Jesus was talking talking to them. Not so with you, disciples. And it was, a, it, was a, it was an issue, it was a challenge for the disciples themselves to wrestle with. Even as people who ought to have known better, had all the information, but were missing it. 
Think of James and John's hearts when they said to Jesus, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. They were straight up trying to manipulate Jesus. Asking for a blank check. I mean, think about that. What's even more mind-boggling, though, in my mind, is Jesus does not go, all right, that's it, you dummies. Are you being for real right now? Jesus doesn't say that. What does Jesus say? His response to me is even more profoundly mind-boggling. He responds to them trying to, you know, manipulate him, and it's kind of obvious, with this. What do you want me to do for you? Is this sinking in? We could read these texts, as familiar as they are, and just go, okay, he's just asking. That's a huge question. Jesus says, okay, what is it you want me to do for you? And what's incredible is Mark uses this very question in its exact phrasing a number of times in his gospel account, just one time here in in our text, but other places, precisely to reveal people's true heart motives. So in other words, there's so much more going on than Jesus just on the surface asking this question, what do you want me to do for you? He's also trying to get their uh, their motivations and and their true motives. Uh, The first time Mark employs this question in its exact phrasing is earlier on in his account. Uh, There was a time when John the Baptist was taken into custody. He was in prison in King Herod's dungeon. And King Herod was throwing a party at which a young gal was dancing for him and the guests. And afterwards, she came up and he was so pleased, he asked the question, what do you want me to do for you? He said, up to half the kingdom, you name it, it'll be yours. What do you want me to do for you? And she, she answered, after consulting with her mom, who had a little bit of vendetta towards John the Baptist, who had, said, who had called her out for leaving her husband for King Herod. She answered King Herod, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. What do you want me to do for for you? Her answer was, I want revenge. The third place this question is used in its exact framing, the second is in our text. The third place is is with uh, Bartimaeus, a man who was born blind. Right after the text we're in today, there's this guy who's born blind who hears that Jesus is getting ready to pass through his village. And so he finds a little spot where he knows Jesus will be passing by and calls out as Jesus passes by, Jesus, have mercy on me. The crowds weren't having any of that. Just like little children, the blind basically had no rights in that society. The crowd essentially said to this guy, shut up. And yet Bartimaeus persisted, Jesus, have mercy with me. And Jesus makes his way over to Bartimaeus and asks him this same question, which on the surface would seem kind of an insensitive question, wouldn't you say? Jesus comes up to blind Bartimaeus, who is asking him to have mercy on him, and asks, what would you have me do for you? Seems kind of insensitive when the dude's obviously blind, wouldn't you say? Until we think about there's a lot more going on with that question than just what's on the surface. He said, what do you you want? And of course, Bartimaeus said, I want to see. Okay. What do you want me to do for you, Bartimaeus? Bartimaeus answers, I want to see. I want healing. I want deliverance. With James and John, he asked them, what what would you have me do for you? Their answer, of course, is we want power. We want to sit at your right hand and your left when you come in glory. We want acclaim. We want recognition. We want influence. We want power, Jesus. This same question will probe your hearts and mine, our values, our motives, if we would allow it to. 
it really is perhaps the most important question God is asking you and me today. What is it you would have me do for you? I mean, just think about that for a second. If Jesus were to appear in front of you today and ask you that very question, what would you have me do for you? How would you answer that question? Especially considering that you would know he could see into your soul, right? Like, how would you answer that question? I imagine for many of us, if we're real about it, we would have the same, similar responses to what we've already seen Mark highlight and these other people. Maybe when Jesus asked us what we'd have him do for us, we'd say, I want revenge. I want you to help me settle a score. Or maybe it's, I want comfort, riches. Maybe it's, maybe it's, I want power. I want to claim. Maybe for some of you, it's, I want recognition. I want to be seen for my contributions and to be praised for it. It could be any number of things. But this question is very probing. And Jesus continues to ask it today. What, what would you want? It's, it's very revealing. It penetrates. It reveals what Tolkien describes as our precious. Time and time again, the disciples serve to illuminate our own hearts and motives. Uh, listen to how Halden Caulfield, uh, you know the character in The Catcher of the Rye, kind of describes this at one point. His, he describes his attraction for Jesus while simultaneously his ambivalence towards uh, the disciples. He says, I'm kind of an atheist. I like Jesus and all, but I don't care too much for all the other stuff in the Bible. Take the disciples, for instance. They annoy the heck out of me. If you want to know the truth, they were all right after Jesus was dead and all, but while he was alive, they were about as much used to him as a hole in the head. All they did was keep letting him down. I like almost anybody in the, in the Bible better than the disciples. I totally vibe with that sentiment. The only problem is, the more I read about the disciples and their interactions with Jesus, the more I see myself in them. On the one hand, reading the disciples, for any of us, if we truly kind of let who they are and what they're about sink into our own hearts, on the one hand, it'll be very heavy to consider because they're hopeless. But that's, that's true of you and me in many respects. But on the other hand, as you read the disciples, you can see it's incredibly uplifting. Why? Because this is why Jesus came. He came for them. He came for, for you and for me. We've considered the call to greatness. We've considered the challenge of greatness. Now let's consider the power, the, the power for greatness. Because what's incredible here in this text is Jesus is not just giving us the call for greatness, true greatness, but also at the same time modeling it for us. Do you see that? Uh, let's look again at these verses because they're very powerful. When, ten, when, when the ten heard about James and John trying to get Jesus to let them sit as, as right and left hand, they became indignant with them. Jesus called all the disciples together and said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. Then referring to himself, he said this, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It in, in the face of the disciples egregiously missing what true greatness is. Uh, in the face of them literally having spent over two years with Jesus. And in the face of them having heard Jesus predict at least twice that Jesus was to lay down his life for them. What we see is where the disciples are stubborn, impatient, and selfish. Jesus is gracious, patient, and selfless. Paul and Caulfield said they were all right after Jesus left and all, but that's just it. They were only all right after Jesus left and all precisely because Jesus kept with them. He kept serving them. 
And of course, this is the gospel. This is the good news. There's actually one other place in the book of Mark where this question that we've considered comes up again in its exact framing, uh, phrasing. It's at the very end when Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, has in his custody Jesus, whom he knows was falsely accused and arrested. He has no way of figuring out how to condemn Jesus because there's nothing in front of him that's condemning. But the religious leaders and really the crowds brought Jesus to Pontius Pilate to have, them, have him condemn and so what, is, what does Pontius Pilate do with his kind of back against the wall? He parades Jesus out in front of the crowds, and then he asks the question, what would you have me do with Jesus? And without hesitating, the crowd yelled back, crucify him. Let me ask you this. Why would Jesus, the Son of God, subject himself to that question asked of the crowd? Why would Jesus, the Son of God, Son of Man, subject himself to humankind's hearts, motives, and values? Why would he do that? Well, he tells us. He tells us so that he give his life as our ransom. Prophesying about 700 years before Christ, Isaiah <clears throat> spoke about the Son of Man, saying, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus said, I came to give my life as a ransom. Jesus became a servant and slave to free us from sin and death. Jesus came, be, Jesus came to be a servant and a slave to free us from the very motives of seeking true greatness in other places. Revenge, power, riches, all areas that will enslave us, do enslave us. So that when we are now asked the question, what do you really want? What, what would you have me do for you? We now have something, actually someone far, far greater than any other thing we could say. And as we get Jesus, because of what Christ did on the cross for us, ransoming his life for the forgiveness of sins, having lived the life that we ought to live and died the death that we deserve, we too now can have life in him, be brought back into an eternal relationship with our heavenly father. And I would just say, if you're here today and you're checking out the claims of Jesus and Christianity, I would, for what it's worth, have you hear nothing else other than this gospel, this good news is available to you right now. That you too can receive what Christ has done for you on the cross dying for the forgiveness of your sins, ransoming his life for yours. And you can receive that by faith. And I would encourage you, if you've, if you've done this or if you, you feel moved to do that even now, this is something we do in our hearts before the Lord. With him, we say, Lord, I receive what you did for me on the cross. I'd also encourage you to put a, down a little spiritual marker. You put that on your connection card. We'd love to come alongside you. If nothing else, pray for you, resource you, if, if that'd be helpful to you. But Jesus can be yours. He ransomed his life for you. But not only that, we see not only what true greatness is, we see him modeling it for us. We see him give us the power to actually do it. Because again, real quickly here, he says, for even the son of God, son of man, excuse me, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I, I can't think of a more mind-boggling statement than that. Jesus had every right to come into this world as the son of God and say, serve me. He created us, after all. And even after he created us to be in a loving relationship with him, we rejected him. 
he had every right to come in and say, serve me. And yet, what did he do? He embodied true greatness in his purest form in giving his life to serve you and me, that we'd be brought back into a relationship with him by faith, never lording it over us, never lording it over us, but showing us the way to serve, and also giving us the power to do it. How so? Well, to the degree you and I look to what Jesus did for us, serving us, yes, even on the cross, when we didn't deserve it, is to the degree that we can begin to maybe, just maybe begin to serve others in the same way. We look to Jesus and we receive his power to do the very things he's calling us into. We let true greatness, the greatness of Jesus, sink into our hearts, is what we're saying. Make no mistake, Jesus in this text is saying there is greatness and it ought to be pursued. He's not under-spiritualizing all of this. He's saying, no, pursue greatness. Just pursue true greatness. Not what society would tell you, but serving others, looking to serve even the least of these. And the last will be first, including in this life, especially in the next life. Look to, to serve others. That's what true, true greatness is. And I'm just convinced, for what it's worth, that we're going to get to heaven. And it's going to be one of those things where we're going to be equal parts surprised at the people that God especially honors and lifts up there. While also equal parts not surprised all that much that those people are the ones that he's lifted up and honored. What do I mean by that? There's so many people doing incredible things. By the way, God calls them to, and we kind of overlook them, do we not? And yet when we get there, we're not going to be surprised. Why? Because Jesus said, that's how it works. The last will be first. I'm convinced that a lot of people, I'm just going to say this, people in our children's ministry, even right now, they're back there welcoming kids in Jesus' name. That's an incredible ministry. You think about the seeds that are replanted for future generations in those kids and future families and future churches. It's like, for those of you who are here in the kids' ministry, it's your off week. We love you guys. The point of serving is not being the, the person on the stage or playing in the bed. It's, 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 it's to serve. True greatness is serving. Giving somebody a cup of water, welcoming their name. And the point here is you saying anybody can do it. Could you just imagine if we begin to live this way just a little bit further? I mean, imagine that with me. Think about how it would revolutionize our homes, our churches, our communities. Doesn't have to be big, doesn't have to be flashy, and anyone can do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the example of the disciples. How just seemingly clueless they are on so many occasions. I thank you for them because at best I would be below them personally. Lord, the the truth is many of us here today probably understood coming in what true greatness is, that we're called to serve. And yet even still, I imagine for most of us, I know I put myself in this camp, fail to do just that as easy and simple as it often is because we, we, we too often have our eyes focused on ourselves on our own name, on our own worth, on our own greatness. But Lord, when you had every right to do that for yourself, you came to serve. And not just in some way, you came to ransom your life. And so, Father, as we come now to your table, so to speak, in communion, to remember your body broken for us, your blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins, help us remember how you came to serve us. Would you help each of us just let that sink into our hearts a little bit more? You came to serve me, to die on the cross 
for the forgiveness of my sins. And not only that, but to call us into true greatness, your greatness, serving others as you served us. Help us do this and be this as a church, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.